0: Welcome to episode 136 of Herpetological Highlights, the podcast all about reptile and amphibian science. My name's Tom Major. Co-hosting with me as ever is Ben Marshall. And in the 136th episode, we have got a Patreon request, which is exciting as usual. We've got patrons with interests in herpetology, and SNS Reptiles has requested an episode on Boas specifically boa imperator the common or central american boa i think sns reptiles has a pet boa and is interested in learning more about the species perhaps something about their genetics or ecology or maybe a bit of both and so um yeah we managed to dig out a paper from relatively recently in 2019 about boas and the interrelationships and genetics of boas on mainland central america and nearby islands boas have colonized many islands and they continue to colonize islands actually they were recently introduced to Aruba by accident and they've been eating everything in sight since then but historically they've also been naturally introduced to lots of islands and that's kind of what we're going to be talking about in this episode
1: and we're not touching on the whole like mainland boa constrictor boa imperator mess correct
0: oh we'll be touching on it with great gusto oh I've worked out what's going Goody on there and drops. you'll be pleased to know. <laughs> yes, you'll be pleased to know there is a section coming up on the <laughs> phylogenetic relationships of boa which is is something which is evolving. So So you've solved it is what you're telling me. I didn't closed. personally solve it obviously but I've come and I've read and I've deciphered and I believe I understand. Okay. Yeah. And actually, I don't think it's that complicated, but we'll get into
1: uh, it. Uh, <laughs> it's phylogenetics. There's always going to be a bit of complication in there when you
0: dig deep enough. As you'll see, though, there are three potentially species of boa, and they are divided quite nicely, quite easily to remember way. But anyway, I'll introduce the paper. The paper's by Card, Adams, Shield, Perry, Corbin, Pekessy, Rowe, Van Gleek, Daza, Booth, Montgomery, Boback, and Casto, published in 2019, Genomic Basis, of Convergent Island Phenotypes in Boa Constrictors, published in Genome, Biology, and Evolution. So you mentioned, Ben, that the whole Boa Constrictor, Boa Imperator thing, obviously in the past... enlighten me. Boa Constrictor had many subspecies and still does, and Boa Constrictor Imperator was a subspecies of Boa, the sort of like Central American ones. And actually the title of this paper uses... Boa Constrictor, but I noticed they capitalized both words and it's not italicized. So they're using the common name Boa Constrictor for Boa Imperator in this title, which I found very confusing. I was personally confused. It made me wonder if they were suggesting that there is actually uh, Boa Constrictors in Central America, but they're, they're not. It seems they've just called Boa Imperator Boa Constrictor in the title and then not used it again, which is slightly confusing.
1: <laughs> well, I mean, it's it's only confusing because the common name is the scientific name that's the problem yeah.
0: yeah so they're using but the thing is i don't think you should use the like if you've got boa imperator you shouldn't be using boa constrictor f- as the common name for that species it needs its own common name like
1: the imperial boa
0: well the central american boa works oh well. that's probably that's probably better yeah but yeah it's because boa constrictor is one of those rare cases where the scientific name has also entered the common vernacular so boa constrictor is the common name of boa constrictor it's kind of like there's a few other examples like that gorilla there? there's like gorilla gorilla yeah yeah gorilla gorilla is a gorilla gorilla
1: gorilla gorilla is west lowland gorilla i believe oh really i I think so i think
0: i think it's the west Lowland. it's one of them that's triple gorilla back to back to back gorilla so yeah so in 2014 there was a paper by reynolds et al and they essentially elevated boa imperator from subspecies of boa constrictor to its own species and um I haven't seen anyone really disagree with that. The genetic samples they used, I think, turned out to be a bit random. They got snakes from the captive trade. When you say random,
1: you don't mean, like, purposefully randomly sampled. You mean haphazard.
0: Basically, yeah. yeah, Like, I think what happened was they sampled a couple of snakes for genetic samples from the pet trade and assumed their provenance was, like, um, Puerto Rico. But then uh, it was enough to to describe imperator as its own species but then subsequently there was another paper by some of the authors of this paper that we're reading today by card et al. and they did a broader scale genetic study of boa. So you've got boas in Mexico all the way through Central America and into South America. And they did this broader scale genetic study and they concluded that actually, in fact, there are three species of boa. So you've got boa constrictor, the true boa constrictor, the big ones. They're in South America, anywhere east of the Andes. So you come into South America, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you pretty much straight away crash into the Andes. Everything east of that is boa constrictor, yep. separate yep. by the Andes. But if you go northwest into Central America, from South America, all the boas, which are in places like Honduras, Nicaragua, Costa Rica, etc., all those Central American countries, those are Boa Imperator, the Central American boa. And then if you keep going northwest towards mexico you bump into the southern part of the sierra madre mountain ranges in mexico and this has also presented a barrier to boas historically and once you cross over those mountains into sort of like western mexico you've got a third species of boa which they suggested should be called boa sigma because that's like an existing name from the past okay so okay They suggest Boa Sigma in Mexico. As you come into Central America, you've got Boa Imperator. And then once you arrive in South America, you've got Boa Constrictor. You know, truly. So
1: the reason you were saying it's all sort of neat is you've got these mountain ranges that provide a nice biogeographical justification why these species would be separate as well as a nice dividing line if you were to find one that looked relatively
0: similar. Well, yeah. And like Boa Sigma's in North America, Boa Imperator's in Central America, And boa constrictors in South America. Job done. It's literally that easy. So if you're wondering what boa you've got, work out where you are first, and you'll know. Yeah. (laughs) So yeah, in this paper, though, we're talking about boa imperator, which is the common boa or Central American boa. And we're specifically talking about snakes from Honduras, Belize, and nearby islands.
1: Yeah, all the islands that are sort of south of the Yucatan Peninsula in that sort of hook right angle sort of zone yeah that's the best i can explain it
0: yeah and so um the setup for this paper is basically boas have colonized lots of islands um some k's as they're known and boas on these islands have been shown to be smaller they're more slender they weigh less uh, they have longer tails they're generally much lighter and they seem to be more arboreal living in trees more and feeding exclusively on passerine birds virtually so they're living on these tiny islands and in these islands there's bird migrations going on so they essentially have a sort of feast and famine existence where for large parts of the year there's not a lot of food to eat they're just kind of like milling about in the trees getting hungry but then there's this big preponderance of food for a short period of the year as the passerine birds true to form pass by and um, the snakes eat as many as they can in that short period of time delicious Yeah. So what they wanted to look at was firstly, the kind of genetic characteristics of boas on islands near mainland Central America, and also the physical features of these boas to sort of confirm whether or not there were these seeming differences. And you've got differences in body size and shape as well as head morphology. So the heads of the boas on the islands tend to be, you can tell, like now that I've seen this paper, I can like tell. I've seen both kinds of boa in real life, both kinds of boa imperator, the island ones and non-island ones, because the island ones have these really sort of like short heads. They're just upturned, sort of a more upturned snout, a very much smaller head. They just have a completely different shape to the head. Mainland snakes have this like beefy fat head. Yeah. Whereas
1: the, the island ones are described as more slender,
0: aren't they? Just in all sorts of proportions, right? Yeah, yeah. And also this more sort of like, almost slightly upturned short snout and they think that that might be an adaptation you know obviously they've got smaller likely because of well we'll get into it but partly likely due to reduced prey availability but yeah this change in their head morphology may be due to the fact that they're eating birds and uh, that requires like a different head structure but what they wanted to do is they wanted to look and see if they could find genetic differences between the islands and the mainland. Well, this is, but
1: then also what they- I feel like you're missing a, a critical point is it's not just like one island or one set of islands. They're looking at four different islands and you have this similar weird difference in morphology from the mainland to the islands. Multiple different kinds. Are- this big question whether that's something that's happened repeatedly or it happened once and then they sort of spread to different islands like are we working with a sort of convergent evolution scenario here or was this like a one-off separation and now they've been isolated and it's just sort of they've drifted into being smaller so there's this question over convergence there's this question over whether it's a selection thing or a like just random chance genetic drift thing You know, with like a a sort of founder effect, like the smaller ones got there by pure chance and they just happen to maintain that sort of smaller size.
0: Yeah, well, that's like a large question that they were trying to answer. Obviously, just to explain like what genetic drift is. So basically once, well, all the time, genes are changing as time moves on right so genetic drift is like the changes in the frequency of gene variants due to chance rather than selection so it's just like you've got a population it's kind of made more dramatic when a population is isolated because like you'll just have random mutations and then they will kind of become common just because the population is isolated it's like interbreeding closely yeah
1: well and tends to be a bit smaller too so the sort of (laughs) proportion of mutations to individuals is smaller bigger uh Smaller, surely. Smaller. Yeah, I was getting confused My what a ratio is.
0: (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so genetic drift kind of causes particular gene variants. It can cause them to disappear completely just just by chance. Genetics are changing over time and it can also cause um, like rare alleles, so like rare characteristics of genes to become very common. But what they wanted to do in this paper was to separate this kind of like random genetic drift from actual adaptation to island locations. And Like you say, they wanted to do that. So they wanted to see if there were these genetic differences between island and mainland snakes. They wanted to see if those genetic differences could be explained by natural selection. And they also wanted to see whether or not the different islands who've had separate colonization events, like you said, three separate colonization events, and they wanted to see whether or not they would kind of found the same genetic solutions to the problems of island life.
1: Well, that's one of the things they found out, that there were three different colonization events right because that wasn't a wasn't a given because we have four islands they're looking at so arguably they could have been four colonizations but the point is there looks to be only three of them don't really want to get into the specifics of the islands themselves but basically two of them yep independently colonized at some point and then there's these these other two which are much closer together and there's sort of debate that maybe they were either connected at one point or they're just close enough that there's Potential for boas from one island to have gotten to the other, because I think it was two and a half kilometers difference.
0: Yeah, it's which, two and a half kilometers.
1: When you say it like that, that does seem like a long way to get across the sea. But in the grand scheme of island colonizations, it's not actually that much.
0: Especially not when you're a snake. And with all sort so of storms
1: rolling in and things like that, and
0: yeah. Yeah, you could imagine a blow. you know, they're hanging out in trees, gets blown off the tree, lands in the water, prevailing winds, very lucky, two and a half kilometres to the next island. Doesn't seem unlikely across like geological timescales. Right, right, which is what we're talking about. So, yeah, you've got this situation where all these boas on islands have grown, have over time become small and um, have these strange, short, blunt heads. So, yeah, they looked to see what was going on, whether or not they were kind of adapting in the same gene regions. And what they basically found was that there were a few gene regions which were like under selection on islands doing certain things suggesting that when these snakes find themselves on different islands the genes which are changing to adapt them to the islands oh okay say what actually before we get into that let's just first start like preface this by saying yes they found evidence that there was not simply genetic drift going on they couldn't explain the variation in island snakes genetics based solely on chance and drift there was definitely some selection going and on.
1: there were some commonalities in the genes that were showing differences from the island population compared to the mainland correct the genes That's were sort right. of it was all tallying up a little bit too nicely like um yeah, yeah.
0: so the same genes were changing but they were changing in different yes. ways was generally the picture so like the same genes seem to be under modification by natural selection, but the specific outcomes are slightly different. So it seems like all of these individual populations are finding ways to become smaller and have more small pointy heads using the same genes, but those genes are changing in subtly different ways, which is kind of cool because it suggests that if a population finds itself on an island, there are multiple pathways to achieve the same look with the same genes. It's not completely all one thing which is kind of this like view of genetics as this kind of like sort of flexible soup that can come up with multiple answers for the same problems
1: yeah they prefix the paper with a discussion on like molecular convergent evolution where you get the same like very 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 similar genetics for the same sort of problem if you want to think about it as problems and solutions and this is You've got that convergent evolution at a genetic level, but not at the like specific molecular level. It almost feels like a halfway, a halfway thing because it's convergent on the sort of trait level. If you class your traits as size and like the sort of slender, but stubby noses or heads. And then it's yes, we've got convergent on a sort of gene level because they're selecting the same similar genes are being modified, but it's not happening at the finest molecular level. Because they've got slightly different no. ways they're changing the genes, <laughs>
0: right? Yeah, but it's really cool because I mean, it means it kind of suggests that like evolution can tweak genes in multiple ways to produce similar outcomes. Which is, it just kind of speaks to the flexibility of the sort of adaptation system. You know?
1: Yeah, no, absolutely, it does. There was a really, really interesting stat they had in here. I forget the exact number. I've got to find it. But basically, it was describing how much of the um, BOA sort of genome is similar to human genome. It's something like 93%, I think it was. It was a crazy high number.
0: So Yeah, well, I was really... That was something which I found quite cool reading this paper is that a lot of the ge- like annotation... So, when you annotate a genome, you basically just make notes on it. So, you have the entire sequence, genetic sequence of an animal, and you make notes on what bits do what. And a lot of the annotation that they use just comes from mammals. Yeah. The vast majority of genes which control for things like um, metabolism or growth, you know, they are consistent among. Mammals and snakes, which I thought was just really cool. They're using like mouse annotated genomes, but they're relevant for yeah.
1: snakes. Yeah, yeah, it was 93 matched with human gene orthologs. So it's they don't necessarily do the same thing, the genes, but there and they match up, and the annotations help out. No, that was truly fascinating. The amount of useful information coming from mammalian stuff, presumably with with medical implications and just sort of general genetic research in mice and stuff. Absolutely, with medical
0: implications. Yeah, fascinating. Absolutely fascinating. Yeah, they actually um, isolated four different genes, four different gene regions, which they knew what they were doing, that were actually changing as a result of being on an island. And two of the ones they connected to their functions were associated with changes in growth hormone production. So that's cool, because obviously the implication is that these island boas have had changes in a gene which controls hormone production. And growth hormone specifically so that explains you know they're not as big there's a gene controlling their growth there's two genes controlling their growth which they can pick out and say yes these are different in island populations which is super cool and the second two which they isolated were known to be or at least known to play a role in the development of facial features in mammals so similarly you know this craniofacial weirdness of the short stubby faces there's also two genes which are implicated in directly controlling that feature which they have recognized as different in island boas which is just fascinating it's, it's an
1: insanely big study this for one thing but it's lovely seeing that connection between you've got the phenotype idd look they're different you can see they're different you're then IDing look we're sort of we can't describe this from we can't explain it just by genetic drift there is some selection not only are we confident in that you can id the spots that are being selected upon and you've got this idea of connecting that back to the phenotype, the changes in physical traits, because of this background information, like, yes, okay, you don't know the exact sort of mechanism within those genes necessarily. But, you know, that that's insane, the amount of sort of corroborating bits of evidence that all tally up and sort of, yeah, it it makes it incredibly compelling, like incredibly, incredibly compelling.
0: Yeah, no, it's just a really, really nice study. So um, yeah, I think like, you've just very neatly summarized it there. There's all these boas on islands. They're reaching the same conclusions in terms of their morphology. And as it turns out, they're also modifying their genes in similar areas, albeit in slightly different ways to come up with a body plan that works for snakes which have to exist on islands where there's very little food for much of the year. You know, being gigantic like they are on the mainland just will not fly if you've got to survive on an island with very little food, it would seem.
1: Right. But they're all sort of modifying those genes in slightly different ways too. So it's not like entirely... Super convergent, but it's convergent if you take it more abstractly, which is a
0: wonderful, wonderful mix. (laughs) Yeah, it's like, yeah, convergent evolution, but not perfect molecular convergent evolution. Yeah,
1: and it's happened multiple times, so you've got this repeatability thing too, which is like a big, that's a big evolutionary sort of question. If you roll back time and play everything again, does it happen all the same, or does it happen in different ways? If you were Mm. sort of being overly overly aggressive with the interpretations of this paper you might want to say yes it's going to happen basically the same again but maybe with a different mechanism
0: Mm. so before we move on from boas i just wanted to um mention a little note that i found which was kind of cool there was this juvenile capuchin you know those little monkeys yeah cebus imitator and basically it was in Costa Rica. So we're talking about Boa Imperator and this Boa Constrictor that was about two meters. Well, they're calling it a Boa Constrictor. It's a Boa Imperator. that was two meters long.
1: Are they calling it that via common name or via scientific? No,
0: it's in italics. Oh. So it's just mm. an error. But, you know, it came out in 2020. Uh, you know, whatever. People are used to calling them Boa <laughs> Constrictors. And these are probably these people are probably monkeyologists as well. Well, it's
1: better than calling it a python. So we'll take it. Uh,
0: allow it so um yeah basically this snake caught this juvenile monkey on the ground the monkey was like playing on the floor and um the boa grabbed it started to constrict it and the baby monkey screamed and when the baby monkey screamed the alpha uh male and female and another adult female so you got three adult capuchins charged over and and physically attack the snake. They were slapping it, biting it, and they grabbed hold of their child and pulled it back. Then pretty much all of the members of the squad came over and they describe it as participating in the vocal mobbing of the snake. So basically they all came over and started screaming at it. And yeah, basically the kind of like take home that they did like a sort of literature review. And it seems as though when boas attack monkeys... They can get the other monkey back, but it always requires at least two individuals to get involved. If not enough monkeys get involved, the boar will win. But if the monkeys collaborate, uh-huh. they'll reign supreme. So what
1: you're saying is uh, snakes as a driver of social
0: cooperation. Yeah. yeah. Interesting. Pretty, pretty cool stuff. Pretty cool stuff. But obviously not an ideal day for the snakes. Missed out on eating a monkey. but Not an um, ideal for baby monkey either. <laughs> probably a trauma it won't seem yeah. to get. But yeah. I just thought that was cool it is yeah just a little insight into what these things are doing in the wild getting mobbed by monkeys it's not an easy life (laughs) it doesn't I mean no
1: I never imagined them having (laughs) too much of an easy life
0: but uh, no wild snakes have a terrible life terrible life monkey mobbings oh so let's move on shall we to our species of the bi week this bi week we have got a paper by Oliver, Donnellan and Gunn, published in 2022, so it's hot off the press. Plio-Pleistocene Vicariants across arid Australia in the spiny knob-tailed geckos Nephrurus asper group. With the description of a new species from Western Queensland, published in the Australian Journal of Zoology. So, we're talking about nephrurus geckos. Hilarious. Yes, they are hilarious. They're called knob-tailed geckos and the reason for that is because... You guessed it. Their tail is a tiny little comical knob. So, in
1: sorry, I'm, I'm going to completely derail you because I want to talk about their. Are feet. Are you going to
0: ask? Oh uh, yeah, okay. Go They've on. got bento gecko feet. Sure. Yeah. Well, I imagine it's probably because they're like ground Yeah. Because they like rocks. They like living under these rocks and stuff. They are sexacolus. They are sexacolus. And yeah, you're totally right. That's all I really
1: wanted to say about them. Just like... I like We that. brought up the bent toe thing as like this big... like Oh, yeah, weird with their bent toes. They're different from geckos. But then here we have one right here with...
0: I mean, admittedly, their toes don't look as bent, but... But it's very much the sort of slender yeah. claw of a, a lizard that scuttles exactly. around on the yeah. ground. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, basically, you've got this... Group of geckos called nephrurus geckos. They're from Australia and they've got funny little knob tails. Their tails are absolutely tiny, and that's why they're called knobtail geckos. The tails are actually kind of disgusting. They look like
1: a, a manx cat.
0: Yeah, basically, this group of geckos are associated with hard, rocky substrates, so that usually you find them in like arid areas where there's like a big outcropping of rock you'll find these geckos and basically if you were to look at the range of Nephurus asper which is the knob-tailed gecko from kind of like northwest australia there's this um basically gap in their distribution they've got like population in the far northwest of australia and then they've got another population like slightly inland but those two populations are actually separated by um, what's known as the mitchell grass downs and these are large areas of treeless grassland and they apparently don't have many rocks either and so you've got this species nepharous asper which has two populations which are disjunct, they're not connected, they're separated by a large tract of grassland, and um, that prompted the authors of this paper to do some genetic and morphological investigations and see, hang on a sec, could we actually recognise this species as its own distinct evolutionary unit worthy of recognition because it's no longer interbreeding and has been separated for a long time and is, you know, physically and genetically different? And they found out it was. So They estimate that these two populations Last shared a common ancestor around five million years ago, which is a significant chunk of it's a time, while. evolutionarily yeah, it's, speaking. <laughs> it's a while. That's longer than um, the divergence times for some other species in uh, in the genus, or at least it's similar. So yeah, they decided, yeah, let's recognise this as a new species. And uh, what have they called it? Nephrurus eromanga. Or the Aramanga Basin Knobtailed Gecko. And they named it after this Aramanga Basin, which is this sedimentary basin in eastern, Austra- in eastern Australia. Did I say northwestern? I said northwestern.
1: You did say northwestern, but I didn't catch whether you did or you were. Was... Yeah, but yes. It's Sorry, in the north. This whole east thing takes place in north. East in Australia. Australia. That's where this is all going down. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Northeastern side. You know how it is with east and west. It's quite hard to sort of. Remember. Well, I
1: always think it is. Yeah. I don't think there's a natural <laughs> yeah. way of east and west. North and south. Fine. I always, yeah.
0: Good. I still have to do never eat shredded wheat every time. Yeah. So, yeah, there's this uh, Aramanga Basin, and that's where they're dis- distributed. So, that's what they've called it. And there was a small town called Aramanga, which. Uh, they've taken the name from which is cool and yeah this species is associated with like rocky country uh, it lives on the ground where there's like rocky scree and boulders and actually if you look at the map they have of australia all of these species of nephrurus are kind of separated by areas where there aren't rocks essentially it Quite looks like wide
1: areas too
0: yeah yeah and i think it's just you know in the sort of uh, biogeographic history of australia as the climate's changed, these species have become isolated in the areas where there are rocks, where previously they could probably uh, move around between. So, yeah, that's what's happened for this brand new species of um, knob-tailed gecko.
1: No, only a little too. 88 millimetres SVL on average. Which, very small. Well, I suppose this is not very small. Every it, Eight centimetres yeah, not small, actually. But then they don't have a big tail to sort of double that. So... It's just what they no, be. That's true. They're just
0: little. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they are funny little characters. I think they're quite amusing little creatures. And but yeah,
1: they're a little bit about conservation status too. One of their sort of bits of range is in protected area. Excellent. But also they bring the uh, attention to the fact that they're liking these rocky areas. Is it means these areas are pretty low priority for people to use for like grazing and agriculture and stuff. So basically it means hey, they're probably going to do all right because nobody cares about the rocky areas. So they've got a nice, safe, economically invaluable habitat to safely live, and they're quite widely distributed. So they're suggesting least concern, which is a really nice, different thing, because I feel like most of the times when we're doing species as a bi-week, it's a weird micro-endemic who's brutally, brutally endangered because of deforestation. Yeah. So
0: it's nice. Yeah, it makes a nice (laughs) change. That's a good news story. That's great. But yeah, welcome to science. Little gecko. What did we say? It was called Nefruis Aeromanga. Yeah. Adorable. So, have you got any other business, Ben, for this episode?
1: Not of any real importance. I just wanted to give a shout out to University of Florida folk who invited me down. Just want to say thanks for having me. It was good to chat to people and I hope everybody enjoyed learning about wildlife trade stuff. Yeah, it was nice to do. And it was
0: good seeing Yeah, folk. you got invited to speak at the University of Florida some podcast listeners in the audience, which is pretty cool. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Nice one. Yeah, good stuff. So you're spreading the gospel about spatial ecology to Florida. No, wildlife trade. Oh, no, wildlife trade. Wildlife trade. Yeah. Oh, very good. Far very less good.
1: optimistic, far more depressing. Oh,
0: dear. Well, I've got some of the other business. We've got a couple of new patrons. So um, big up and big thanks to Jafe and Matt Sl- Slattery-Holmes. Thanks, guys. And Jafe, he may not hear this for a while. I know that He's going through the back catalogue, so uh, (laughs) yeah, saw it on Twitter. (laughs) Good luck with those first episodes. It's good. It's nice that there is a back catalogue. Yeah, I just don't think I could listen to, like, maybe, I think the third one we kind of got into our stride, but the first one I just think would be a cringe fest for me to listen to now.
1: Well, that's definitely a good thing. Like, we want improvement. Stagnation is...
0: I vividly remember going on a rant about principal component analysis in that episode. Excellent. Which it's something i blatantly didn't even understand should bring it back <laughs> yeah anyway yeah that's all that remains oh uh, that's it for this episode jumping the gun um you can get in touch with us at herphighlights at gmail.com if we've woefully misrepresented your paper on genetics of boas i'm sorry and we would love to correct ourselves <laughs> yes and uh yeah if you wanted to become our patreon like sns reptiles thank you for suggesting this episode you can at patreon.com slash herphighlights and yeah we're on social media. And I think all that remains to be said is thank you. For yeah, listening. Thanks for listening.